Welcome to the Jack Daniels Show, a new show every Tuesday. Giving you a shot of unconventional opinion. No filter. No nonsense. No political correctness. Tune in for real talk. Everyone is swinging on Biden, but Trump does have the early lead. Yes. Um, for now, that doesn't really mean much. But, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Look, um, conditional probabilities if he wins Pennsylvania are good. So the early one is Florida. If Trump loses that, it's over. It's over. Yeah, it's well, finished. There's no thing, plausible path to victory. Well, good thing Trump is leading that by 15 points as we speak. Right, but that probably yeah, that probably is uh, because of the um, the current counties that are being counted are probably conservative. Um, yeah, it's, it's gonna it's gonna get tighter, but yeah, we'll see. Um, it's too early to say. It's too, it's too early to say. Then there's um, oh, there's oh, there's Ohio, but he he might win that. Um, there's North Carolina, which mm-hmm. is, which is hanging in balance. Some of them even say Georgia, and Texas could turn. Uh, really, they will turn red. Blue. Oh, red. That's oh, right, blue, blue. Yeah, yeah they okay. could turn blue. Um, I don't know that uh, that's uh, going to happen. I don't think, I don't think so. True. Fake news. Um, <laughs> uh, the real, the really, the really important one is um, Pennsylvania. That's why. Real. Why Pennsylvania? Um, so traditionally the Rust Belt, which is Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, Pennsylvania have formed a blue wall, right? Which means that, that blue wall was basically the thing that was going to keep Trump from getting elected Mm. in 2016. It's like, even if things didn't go to plan, even if Hillary didn't win Ohio or Florida or North Carolina or whatever, right? She still had that blue wall. Yeah, right. Um, Trump cracked the blue wall and no one was expecting that. She didn't campaign in those areas because they're traditionally Democrat and they haven't voted for Republican in Yonks, right? Um, mm. So, so and he, he, won, he won Pennsylvania, and I th- um, which was a big shock. Um, He's been campaigning in that area like very vigorously. Yeah, as well. Now, the thing is, because of conditional probabilities, if he wins Pennsylvania, the chances of him winning another Rust Belt state are much higher. Yeah. And his chances of winning the election go from 11% as per like 538 to 62%. Really? Yeah. That one state? (laughs) Yeah. That's because 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 uh, the probabilities are correlated, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, it, it's a bit insane how one state in that blue war can change so many things. Yeah, it, it would change many things. Um, but he's trailing in Pennsylvania. That's the thing. Mm. According to the polls, he's trailing by five points, which is just a little bit larger than normal polling error. Okay, like what's a normal polling error, just for reference? Something like three to four percent. Okay, he yeah. won by normal polling error last time. Mm-hmm. As in, okay, no, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Um, but the pollsters, like, um, and the, the forecasters, like, if you talk to five thirty eight and you tell them what the hell happened in twenty sixteen, this is what they'll say: our models were fine, our forecasts were accurate. The only thing is that at the end of the day, we're dealing with uncertainty. Um, and it just downstream just so happened to go in Trump's favor. It was within the normal range of errors for polls. So, and that was that was it. I think it's full of crap. I think there are okay. Why? 
Well, I just think that there are some systemic um, issues with the polls. Okay. Not just not, not, not just uh, random, like just you know, random error. Um, I think there's systematic error going on. Can you, can you for those um, that are listening, like who are not familiar with American polling systems, could you kind of explain it? American polling systems? Yeah. What do you mean? As in, like how the polling system works for American elections. Because there's like, you know, statewide polls, national wide polls, you know, let's break it right, down. Right, 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 yeah. Um, so nationwide polls are mostly worthless in America because it's not about who wins the popular vote. No one cares about who wins the popular vote. They care about the electoral votes, which is on a state by state basis. If you win one state, then you've, then even if you only won by a little bit, you've won all of that state's electoral votes. Win it takes all system. Yeah, and, and every state has a certain amount of seats, I believe. That is correct. Um, that is non-linearly proportional to their population. Yeah, it's a bit dumb, so, but it is what it is. Well, it's there for a reason, but yeah. So, like, California has the largest population. It therefore has the most votes. But the votes are not linearly proportional yeah. to the population. So, um, there are less electoral votes per person in California um than in like wyoming for example so do you win by the, the amount of seats you ultimately secure or is it the amount of like states you win no it's the amount of electoral votes it's the number of electoral votes so not all states are equal right. that's one of the reasons why florida's a must win because it's got 29 electoral votes which is a crap ton of electoral votes yeah, you yeah. can't lose 29 and then somehow win it's probably it's, it's not gonna happen right so so even let, let's say okay so there's 29 right so Let's suppose Trump wins 15 out of the 29, right? Wins by one. Then he gets all 29. He gets all 29. Okay. Right. So it's a, it's a winning takes all system in almost every single state. There's only, there are only two states that have like a non-winner takes all system. Yeah. Um, but they don't matter. Nebraska and Maine, but yeah, they right. don't really matter. So, so when you talk about the polls, right, are you referring mm. to the statewide polls? Uh, yes. Well, specifically the forecasts that string together all the statewide polls. Okay. Right. And so I don't care about national polls. They say that he's up eight, nine percent or some crap like that with respect to the popular vote. That doesn't matter. That's not the game we're playing. The game we're playing is who wins the most electoral votes. That means that the only game that matters is statewide polling um, and, and specifically the forecasts that string together all the statewide polling to give us a picture of what's going to happen to the country. Yeah. So, okay. So now that we've established the polling system, so why do you think, you know, there are these biases with the polls? Why don't you think they work as well as they should be? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, I think firstly, we need to say that it might be difficult to nail the factors of, of, of why that's happening but i think i think there probably is some systemic error occurring because last victory was unlikely um unlikely in what, what way unlikely in the sense that every single pollster had him getting destroyed by hillary okay getting destroyed by hillary um some of them by some insane margins um not all of them but 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 even even though even the most conservative ones had him losing by pretty high margins. So I mean half like post, you know, half post had ninety-eight percent. 
um <laughs> new york times what? had like 94 percent chance okay. of, of of hillary winning so anyway so, so then you're going to tell me that oh it was just a you know an act of god like a random chance that <laughs> this six this six percent chance that that he won um you know that's what um, that's what happened no I, th- I think there's some some there are probably some biases one hypothesis is the shy trumper effect have you he- have you heard of the yeah, shy- yeah so basically um they are trump supporters but they are not they don't feel comfortable admitting that they support trump yeah. right they might not necessarily like trump right because trump is you know a bit embarrassing to the people um all the media is lashing out on trump and so you know, when they get polled, they'll say they will vote for the Democrats. But in reality, they are Republican. Right. That, that's correct. It's gotten a lot of flack, this hypothesis, from pollsters. They don't like it. Okay, why is that? They don't like it because, or in my opinion, the reason why they don't like it is because it sort of, number one, it messes with the credibility of their polling. Mm. that's obvious secondly though it implies that there's a kind of social stigma associated with voting for trump so in other words there's an asymmetric stigma like there's maybe there's no such there's no stigma for admitting you're going to vote democrat but there is for admitting you're going to go vote republican um and i don't think they like the idea of that because that means that one side is being a little bit more judgy than the other side right yes (laughs) um i don't think that's (laughs) I don't think they like to frame frame it like that in their head. Okay. We can so, say something. So do you think like that is the reason or do you think it's something I, else? I think that could be the reason. Okay. Um, I, the, the thing is, one of the rebuttals I've heard, and this is true, one of the rebuttals I've, I've heard um, from some of these, you know, respectable pollsters mm-hmm. is that the reason why the shy Trump, Trumper effect is full of crap is because look at all the enthusiasm that he gets from his rallies. You know, clearly Trump voters aren't shy. Look at the rallies. And it's like, yeah, that's his base. His base isn't shy, sure. But his base isn't what delivered him the victory, you idiots. Yeah, it's, it's those swing states, eh? <laughs> it's those, and not just the swing states, it's those Republican voters in those swing states who held their nose and voted for Trump. Mm. Not the ones who were excited about him, yeah, he's got a he's got a decent base. They're very active. They're very vocal. That's true. They're not embarrassed, right? But you can't win on your base alone. Yeah. So I think I think it's a reasonable hypothesis. I don't really believe that it's been disproved. Um, okay. But it could be one of many factors. You've got 350 million people. Good luck figuring out what the hell happened. <laughs> Is it also possible that you know there's this sampling bias? Maybe they aren't sampling as random as they should be. Um, yes, in fact, that's one they're willing to admit to. Okay, like so, five, so yeah, that's probably like the second reason. Yes, it's probably there's something about the way that they choose who to like you know to select for polling that has some kind of hidden bias. Um, Nate Silver admitted to that in 538 that they might be missing some Trump voters because of the there there might be some kind of hidden bias in the way that they select. Yeah, and like, do you know how many people they they interview um, when they do the polls? 
I actually don't know. Because like, you know, depending on how they sample, right? You know, and the amount of people they sample. Yeah, for sure there can be all these systemic biases. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many people they sample. It depends on each pollster. So each mm. pollster will have their own methodology and um, obviously they're going to want to be picking enough people so that the average error ends up being something like 5%. Yeah. So you're probably going to be picking at least over a thousand people to poll. Yeah. But the thing is, I don't think a thousand people is that representative. No, no, but that's, but you're dealing with hundreds of polls here. Oh, okay. There's hundreds of polls. Fair yes. enough. There's hundreds of polls. But the, the thing is they have different methodologies. Some of them are higher quality. Some of them are lower quality. Well, I can just imagine given how illiterate people are in statistics, like all these, like half the polls are just nonsense. It's pure garbage. Right, right. 538 actually tries to give each of them some sort of rating. Okay, that's good. On, on how good each poll is and they weight it accordingly. But that didn't work last time. <laughs> they were still off. They were the least off, but they were still off. I feel like there's also this third reason. Sometimes when we see a result that doesn't really make sense to ourselves, we try and justify it or like we try and like redo the numbers or like kind of like rehash the numbers so that it kind of makes sense again. And for the last election, everyone was pretty much on Hillary's side, at least in the public. Um, you know, the bookies were on Hillary's side, markets were on Hillary's sides, etc. right? Now, when the polling got done, right, I could imagine, you know, maybe half of them realized that, okay, Trump is actually more ahead than they, they thought. So they must have justified that it must have been an error or an oversight on our behalf. And, and that's probably like what's, you know, causing to, them to, you know, readjust the methods and try and cook together a number that makes more sense. That's more in line with, you know, the public eye. Right. And do you think that will yield a more accurate result? No, because they literally have a, a predetermined goalpost, right? And that's probably what's causing like half the systemic issues. So you think they might be like overfitting? Yeah, pretty much. Mm. Yeah. Like, Cause like, let's say you, you, Everyone thinks Hillary's going to win, right? But then when you go out and do the research, do the polls, and you see that, okay, Trump's ahead by, I don't know, 5% or something. You'd be like, okay, that's actually probably not true. Must have been an error on our behalf. So you, you just go and take another sample. And in the new sample, well, because of just pure volatility of resampling, okay, now it swings 5% in Hillary's favor. And you're like, okay, we're going to take this as a truth. Yes, that happens. And that tends to happen um, very aggressively towards the end of a cycle, like towards the beginning of the election, because the pollsters feel pressured by the other pollsters. Yeah. They see all the other pollsters saying this and this and this, um, and they've been saying it for the last two weeks. They're like, oh, these results must be off. <laughs> let's, ditch, <laughs> let's ditch these results. I mean, people do like independent thinking. You see this all the time when you're investing in markets. Once someone goes like, okay, this, this stock is hot. And then they see it rise. Everyone just follows the bandwagon. The classic right. pop and dump. Right. And so that's likely what's been happening to pulses, particularly towards the end. 
for sure. Um, which could mean that the odds are being, well, it's another, could be another reason why the odds are being underestimated at the moment for Trump. Mm. But um, it may be that Trump's going to lose. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting seeing what happens this time around. I, I do think Biden will probably win. Um, but the question is, how close is it going to be? Because I do think if it, I think it's going to be closer than what most people anticipate. It's not going to be a clear Biden victory. And in that case, right, well, who knows what, what's going to happen? Like what sort of stalemate is going to occur? Yeah, it's hard to predict. Mm. Which is another thing that um, is worth mentioning. Information flows from social media um, and other such places have actually increased the volatility or increased the uncertainty associated with elections. The reason why is because it's very easy now, or it's way easier than it used to be, to have a gauge, to have a have your hand on the pulse of public opinion Mm. so political parties you know they they can know when what they're doing is sort of approved and what's not approved at all and so they can make all these thousands of like tiny little mini adjustments yes which end up you know reaching an equilibrium point of roughly 50 50 and the more, the better they get at adapting and adjusting to information from social media, from from, the, from other media, etc. Um, the the more uncertain elections will be until we reach the or you know head towards the limit point of like um, of a coin flip. Right. You know what's fascinating? Like I think. Trump is the first person that's actually pioneered the use of social media. The American you know, parties has just been really slow into getting into social media. Like they've relied traditionally on very archaic and slow journalistic methods to try and deliver their message across to the general public. And, you know, we have to give Trump a lot of credit in, you know, really using his platform on Twitter. That has never been done before. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, have to, I have to go with that. Um, his Twitter tirades are very entertaining. <laughs> it's like watching a new reality TV show. Yeah, I mean, I think people misunderstand, serious, respectable people misunderstand um, the, how the populace at large views election. I think plenty of people don't take them nearly as seriously as all the respectable or intelligent people think they should. Yeah. And so if someone is entertaining them, maybe they'll just vote for him because he's entertaining. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Uh, but then also like um, what, what social media does let you do is it lets you hyper-segment your audience as well. Um, so you can have, very, have a very like targeted approach in, you know, who you are trying to deploy your resources and tension um, towards. Because like for Twitter, right? You can kind of chop it up by age, you know, by, by city, um, et cetera, right? So there's a lot of possibilities that you can do. Whereas, you know, for traditional you know, journalism, you can't really do that. It's like a, a blanket target 
Um, mm. But that being said, I do think it's a bit powerful to hyper target at that level um, for a political party. What do you mean? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, so, so like more than before, right? Like, you know, you can target like whoever you want. Whereas, you know, before you can only do, you know, TV ads or, you know, journalist newspapers in order to try and reach them. Mm. Now, with social media targeting, the issue comes along with, okay, is it, there's, there's a bias towards, you know, the bigger social media platforms, right? So, you know, if the Republicans, I think it's the Republicans, they own a lot more social media real estates in terms of like followers and, and stuff compared to the Democrats, then like, first of all, is that systemically fair? And secondly, right, going back to a previous episode, is it fair that social media firms like Twitter or Facebook, right, they use their algorithms to try and, I suppose, push different messages across, right? Mm. Like they have this internal bias they, they comment as neutral, right? But with the recent Hunter Biden thing, right? It's hard to maintain the neutrality anymore. And so the algorithms are a black box. Who the algorithm chooses um, to show the news towards is, you know, inherently flawed and biased. And so that's the problem. That's a big, that's a big problem. And maybe, yeah, because what that means is that at the end of the day, the people who decide who gets into power, especially as elections come closer and closer to a coin toss, mm. then marginal improvements can be decisive, right? Yes. Marginal edges can be decisive. So if you're telling me that the social media companies have all this power um, and, and, and they can give somebody that edge, then they can decide who wins the election. In which case we're not dealing with a democracy at all. We're dealing with some weird kind of oligarchy of these social media giants. Yeah, pretty much. The question is, how do you fix that? You got you got to regulate them, and if they cross certain boundaries, they should be punished for it. Maybe the, the algorithm should be public. No, nah, I don't think the algorithm should be public. Keep um, proprietary, so they can make be- their money. No, it should definitely be proprietary, right? Mm. And I do think there is the merit in still having it being very hyper-targeted because otherwise, ad money would dry up. It's a lose-lose situation, I'd say. Um, but they definitely do need to be held to journalistic standards. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. This is why I think we should bring back dueling. <laughs> like like the, uh, the pistol... Uh, shooting thing yeah, yeah yeah it was a very have i explained this to you before yeah you have have explained this on the podcast no you haven't okay let's let's talk about this um yeah Mate. this is why this is why i'm i'm a, I'm, I'm a big believer in Mate, this is how gawa died Rest in peace. yeah look it was gawa those push kicking very sad but i still believe in dueling and this is why the idea goes something like this someone says something you know, really nasty to somebody else mm-hmm been uncalled for at least it's very rude um if it is indeed uncalled for and rude and you know like a a truly nasty comment 
and the person who's offended, the victim, decides to issue a challenge to mm-hmm. a duel to that person, then like the eyes of society just focus on you know the, the person who offended, like the offender, just waiting. What are you going to do, bro? Are you going to take the challenge? <laughs> Right, and he doesn't, and then he's 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 the beauty of it. He doesn't really have a choice because if he reject, he can reject the challenge. You know, maybe maybe doesn't want to risk his life. He can he. It's like feel free to reject the challenge, right? But if that happens, then everybody will ostracize him socially. Okay, right? Because in their eyes, he did say something that was out of line, and fine, you're you're allowed to say that, right? But at least have the, the you know the balls to face face the person you insulted in that way yeah 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 the 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 beauty of it as well is that there were very few deaths associated with dueling like percentage wise the vast majority of duels um the people like the the person the uh the victim so to speak the person who was offended deliberately misses oh that's actually surprising but okay, that's not gonna fly in modern culture. Think about the cancel culture, man. I don't know, bro. <laughs> Dude, the cancel culture is just gonna like just, ruthlessly it, it, gun it's, down it's just, people. It's just, oh well, I don't know about that. I I don't think they're willing to put their life on the line. I think they're willing to virtue signal about it. I don't think they're willing to put their life on the line. Okay. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And and so the idea wasn't to kill someone. It, that could happen, and occasionally it did. And it was important that it occasionally happened just to show, hey, everybody, there's a real life and death risk here. But the majority of the time, that that didn't happen because the point was you needed to risk your life. If you were willing to say something bad that society judges as, whoa, 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 that is way out of line, right? Then you needed to face up to the person you offended and risk your life, even if they were going to miss anyway because they didn't want to kill you. Right. right? It It was about the risk. Right. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't a punitive system of I'm going to punish you. I'm going to actually kill you. Right. So, so it's just about putting your kind of like, like, you know, putting your money, you know, where your mouth is. Yeah. 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 And it's also about giving them a little fry. It's giving them a, giving them a good fry. Yeah. Um, and so what that meant was like, there were, there were no lawsuits and slander and this and, 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 and libel suits and all that crap. Right. Um, if somebody said something that wasn't that bad and, you know, somebody else is, issued a challenge, challenge um, for a deal, society will just ignore that person if it's a frivolous challenge, mm. right? So if, if, if you're just like this, you know, macho bravado guy and you're like, oh, yes, I want to challenge you because you said blah, blah, blah. And it's a dumb challenge. People will be like, whatever, dude, just shut up. <laughs> Right, like the, the, there'd be no expectation to take the challenge, in. yeah. Um, which which is good because it's like a system that just works, um, and it makes everybody civil and polite. Because if you're not polite, <laughs> you might die. <laughs> um, no, but but um, I get yeah. it. You, you you can't really you can't really implement the guild these days. But no, you can't. <laughs> but but just, I think the idea does make a lot more sense. Like. I mean, I mean, that's that's why I say that you know social media firms should be held to a high standard, right? Like, there should be the risk of punishment, you know, looming over their heads, right? Whether they get punished or not, that's a different story. But with that risk, they are then forced to innovate, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, which is why, you know, I mean, that's, that's all regulation is anyways, right? That's why you have regulatory bodies. I mean, look, I hate regulation usually. Oh, me too. <laughs> but the issue is that when you have social media companies misbehaving mm. and stoking a lot of hatred, like um, within within groups, so you, you take a you take a group, you cause it to cluster, and then in order to get more clicks, you get them in a frenzy of hatred towards the other group. Yeah, that kind of thing. That can have serious social consequences. I was talking to the other day to a friend of mine um, about the potential for civil war in America. And we agreed that the chances weren't super high, maybe like 5% or something. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I mentioned um, that took him a little bit by surprise, but he sort of realized that it was a legitimate point is that they're talking about civil war quite a lot these days in America. Oh, really? Like people have been mentioning, there have been articles on it. There have been, there's been talk about civil war, right? And that discourse itself actually serves to normalize the prospect of a civil war and actually increases the likelihood of it happening. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so one of, and one of the reasons there's talk about it is because there's so much hatred from either side. Yeah. Like, the so the American populace is I'd I'd say like more divided than ever. It's insane, right? So the issue with social media companies doing what they do, clustering, stoking hatred, is that can actually have massive social consequences. Yeah, because you can. That's how civil wars start, right? Civil wars start with hatred. Mm-hmm. It doesn't start with arm, you know, arming yourselves and, and getting your ammo ready and, and stockpiling weaponry. That's not how it starts. It starts off with, wow, I really, really hate those people. <laughs> right. Um, and then you talk about how much you hate them. And then you talk about, and then there's some, there's a little bit of civil conflict here and there, like we've seen with BLM and whatnot. And then oh, people dude, start BLM talking. was insane. That was like, psycho. I, I've that never was... seen people raid and, and and commit crimes and just just blatantly get away with it and then people call it it's okay well, no, people were defending it people were defending the looting they burnt down a police precinct dude they 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 kind of like ransacked a um uh, a, a court as well really yeah dude um so, so you get you get little bits of civil conflict like that, and then suddenly you have people talking about civil war. What do you think is going to happen next? Dude, you know, you know the funny thing is like you know when it, when people went and you know called BLM rides out, right? The amount of supporting was just shocking. I know. I'm like, what happened to people's moral compass? <laughs> it's, it's like it's like you can justify anything. As long as it's for some greater good, right? And, and I suppose the greater good here is, you know, black equality, right? You know, lowering mm. the amount of, you know, um, mistreatment towards, you know, that particular uh, race. And, and I get it, but it's it, like the way they did it is kind of insane. Right. That's true. That's a good point. What we're seeing is basically if. If something addresses a partisan concern, it can't be wrong. So what I mean is if, you know, something is associated with the democratic agenda, 
like like BLM, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how violent it gets, then in, in the eyes of Democrats, it can't be wrong, right? Their political compass has become their party's agenda. Yeah, it's, it's insane. And vice versa for Republicans, maybe to a slightly lesser extent. Well, I mean, the as, Republicans do the inverse, right? Yes, but they, they tend to... So they've done some research on this and they found that America has been getting more polarized, um, but like the the Republicans have gotten like a little bit more right wing, mm-hmm. but the Democrats have gotten much more left wing. Right. So there's actually been more polarization towards the Democrat end, which is why we're seeing a lot of the violence from the Democrats themselves. I'm not surprised, but but what's actually pushing it? Like, is it because, you know, all, all the far left movements um, do stem from universities or like, what is it? That's a good question. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I, I think it's the fact that the right wing tends to be more reactionary. So mm-hmm. in other words, there's always going to be a lag. So the Democrats will first go much further left. Mm-hmm. And then in response to that, the Republicans will start to shift to the right. They're, they're reactionary. It's um, right. They're, they're, they're driven by hatred or fear of um, whatever crap the other party is doing. I mean, it's definitely true that um, the far left has been the initiators in recent years, mm. right? And they have definitely played like, okay, like as a disclaimer, I'm, I'm pretty neutral, but um, the far left has definitely played the identity politi- politics pretty well, right? It, it's kind of like trying to, I suppose, you know, target the, the inner, you know, desire for altruism in order to try and, you know, almost bait people into taking action. I mean, there's nothing fundamentally wrong in, I suppose, supporting, you know, females and equality or BLM, you know, and their rights. But like the way they do it is, is kind of like very underhanded, I'd say. Mm. Well, part, part of the reason for that is because one belief associated with the far left is the subjectivity of morality, right? Mm. And so for them, the ends really can justify the means. They, they're very happy to affirm that. And depending on the particular context, culture, whatever, um, depending on the, on the vibe, on the environment, they're happy to basically almost, almost anything can be justified if the outcomes that they personally desire are being fulfilled. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing the far left really drift off and go off the deep end. Um, in response to that is where you get a far right. Mm. You know, people who, who look at that and go, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so I think in the, in, the, in the future, expect to see um, the Republicans begin to mirror the left foot drift of the Democrats. Right. But they're not there yet. I mean, they, they... I mean the, the Democrats kind of like carved out their own niche. That's pretty hard to beat. How are you going to beat, I suppose, this, this moral altruism that they, they throw at you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, what I do know is that 
um, you know, there's there's been there's already been violence. Mm-hmm. So there's a presence full of violence, and uh, right now it's been very one-sided. Mm-hmm. But the second it gets two-sided, then we're dealing with an extremely volatile situation. Oh yeah, for sure. The situation's already volatile because you have a far left that's going a bit psycho at the moment. Right. You, you know, like New York City has bolted their windows just just in case. Yes, and they're blaming Trump. It's insane. They're blaming Trump because they're just preparing for the possibility that he wins and their people come out and trash the place. Yeah, but that's Democrats' <laughs> fault. Like, I know they're that, literally doing it to themselves. I know that, but they but they're blaming Trump for for stuff that they're about to do in response to him winning. Dude, dude, um, it's it's so so double standard. It, it's insane. <laughs> Yeah. So like, like, honestly, like I've no problem about, you know, uplifting other people, like uh, other, like, you know, small minority groups, but just the mm. double standards is just insane. And, and, and here's the thing, right. By uplifting, you know, minority groups and trying to bring them to a certain level, you're, you're just pretty much creating biases and, and pushing other groups down. Right. Um, that, that's actually- how it is going. The biggest losers in America with respect to um, affirmative action Dude, it's Asians. are the Asians, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the whites are basically not affected. It's kind of neutral, right? You get your mark, mm-hmm. you, you get in. Um, you don't get the mark, you don't get in. Asians, you get the mark, you still don't get in. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's really insane how you, you see all these Asian girls. They, they're kind of like rallying against all these minority groups. Black Lives Matter, oppose female equality. But here's the thing, right? Like, why are they not rallying against Asian bamboo ceilings or like Asian like nerves <laughs> or oppressions or whatever you like to call it, right? Like, yeah. we need to make that more popular. I'll tell you why that's not happening. And there's a very good reason for it. It's because when Asians come to settle um, in a country, specifically the US, but in, in, in most Western countries in general, they always settle in highly urbanized places mm. in cities right you don't you don't see asians for example coming to australia and then they decide to live in bathurst or dubbo or orange you yeah, know it doesn't happen right um in the us there, there's obviously more options they they can go to lots of like smaller cities that we don't really have too much of in australia Mm-hmm. But they don't. They always go for super urbanized places where all the jobs are, yeah, where the best true. universities are, where the best schools are. That's where they go to. Now, the issue is that all of those places, all of them, are heavily democratic. Yes, right? which is why I, I said that, you know, maybe universities is the actual systemic reason why, you know, the left is becoming more left, right? Well, well, yeah, well, yeah, because the universities in America in particular, Australia, not so much, but America in particular, they're very effective at indoctrinating, catechizing uh, their students. Yeah, I mean, there's this whole university college culture, right? You, you kind of yeah. form your own identity behind, you know, what college you go to. It's yes. not like Australia, right? Like, we, we don't care what uni we go to. Like, we care about what high school we go to. But... In America, it's the exact opposite. It's about the college. Yes, yes. So there, there, there's a particular college culture um, and that makes it, there's a lot of things about college in, in America. But at the end of the day, the end result is they're very good at programming students. 
And so what, what you have is a group in America, Asians, who really, when you think of it, should be naturally skewing Republican. Yeah. Right. By every indication, they, they should be skewing Republican. They, they, they do very well in free market economies, right? <laughs> Correct. I mean, I mean, they have higher IQ, higher work ethics, higher, but yet it's like relinquishing all those advantages that we are blessed with. Right. <laughs> um yeah yeah you're dealing with 75% ish democrat the asians which is quite high um and so that's why then you're not going to see them marching for you know an end to the sort of disadvantageous affirmative action that's kind of screwing them over in favor of um african americans yeah like like you're I'd, not going to say that i mean okay like it's fine to still support these things but like at the end of the day right like they need to be more supportive of their own culture that's the thing that irks me off yeah but it's a zero-sum game i i agree right? uh, affirmative action is a zero-sum game Dude, affirmative action is not the recipe for success i don't think so yeah you're right i think if you want to look i also am very happy to uplift minorities right very mm-hmm. happy Right, but you got to actually fix the root of the problem, right? And the root of the problem is that these inner cities where they grow up are hell holes. Yeah, and terrible, terrible schools, terrible was, everything. The problem with affirmative action is even if you get in to like a, a level of status, right, where there's a good university, you spend your whole life just questioning if you're actually worth something. Yes, yes, that happens. So and and and. The other bad thing is like they'll get into a university that's um, out of their league. Mm-hmm. And so like they'll get into an Ivy League, for example, and literally everybody there is smarter than them. Yeah, that's, that's not good. Which is not good for, the their, for themselves. Like they might be reasonably smart people, right? They, they might be quite relatively intelligent, right? But then they end up in, I don't know, MIT studying mathematics and suddenly... <laughs> Yeah, something to the next, like, you know, Math Olympian just crushes their souls. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> may, may, maybe they're two standard deviations above the mean. And selling this random by everybody who's like four standard deviations above the mean, right? And they feel retarded. Uh, so I think that's very bad for their um, mental health. Um, and yeah, you, it's like you already get imposter syndrome, even if you're normal, even if it's a normal situation, right? But that just amplifies the the imposter syndrome which is you know very bad like if anything i think it needs to come from like you know systemic like everything needs to come systemically like the fix needs to be from the root right you know what i would do what schools that aren't performing because it's i'm not sure if you know but america the vast majority of americans go to public schools private schools are, are not nearly as um pervasive as they are here right and so what happens is public schools don't have a profit loss signals. Okay. So in other words, if they're really crap, it doesn't matter that they're really crap. They continue operating. Oh, really? They continue operating. They continue operating. Right. So here's what, here's what I would do. Underperforming public schools, right? Raise them to the ground. Mm, I mean, met- metaphorically, you know, raising to the ground could mean firing every single person who's in an administrative position. Um, mm. You know, fire, firing all the crappy teachers. Fire, 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 close down, close down, close down, close down. Um, and I would institute a system of school choice. 
So they don't have school choice. What that means is if they live in a particular area, yeah, they're not allowed to go to a public school in a different district. Yeah, I'm actually aware of this. Better perform- yes. So I'll just instantly institute school choice so that schools are allowed to die organically as well because everybody leaves them because they suck. Yeah. Right? I, I, think, I think letting free markets work is, is a good idea. 100%. Um, but, but I do think, you know, controlling people through, you know, fear is not a solution. No, no, it's not about controlling, you know, the, the, the average like African-American living in these communities, right? It's about cleaning up, getting rid of the scum, getting, getting rid of the people that make them like scared to walk around in the streets. Um, I mean, I'm not talking about so-called victimless crimes, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about people that are like, I don't know, selling dope, right? Who cares? <laughs> Whatever. Um, it's a bit degenerate. It's a bit degenerate, okay? Um, it's a bit distasteful. But like, that's not the reason why you have these stupid homicide and murder rates, right? Mm. Um, so, so, so you just, you just get to focus on the criminals, right? And you stop treating them with kid gloves and you stop sending them to jail for 20 years only to come back 20 years later. No, you just go. Um, <laughs> mate, mate, that is very contrarian. <laughs> I'm just saying, um, the other thing I would do is this, right? This, the other thing I would do is this. I would find, so you have an issue with fatherlessness in America. Uh, especially among African-Americans, something like 80% of African-American kids are born out of wedlock. Yeah, I'm aware of this. It's, it's pretty surprising. So um, there's a lot of research to show that if you were raised in a fatherless household, you're more inclined to crime, you're less, you're less likely to, you know, get, you know, good educational achievement, um, you're more likely to earn less, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's not good. Right. It's, it's not a survival instinct, pretty much. Yeah, like you, yeah. You, you lose a paternal figure, figure, right? And so, what do you turn to? Well, obviously the streets. That's right. That's it. you're 100 percent correct. You you actually turn to to the streets, not because you're a horrible human being, but because you need some sort of paternal guidance. Yeah, you need paternal guidance. You know, which is why gangs got created, and and also you know they do solve the financial problems that a often single mother um, would face. I think it's quite the norm for a, a African-American single mother to be working like three or four jobs. Right, right. Um, so here's what I would do. I would find, you know, these good functional African-American families and I'd be like, here, take my money. He has all this welfare. You know, he, he, he's, all the, he's all the dosh. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just be right. So I'll be financially incentivizing good families for sticking together. And then for, um, for, for, for dysfunctional, you know, non-traditional families, I would just tighten the tap, you know, less money, less welfare, um, which in the short term is going to suck for a lot of families. But in the long term, it will mean that there is a financial incentive for, for families to be cohesive. Oh, and I would like every like child, some good functional African-American family has. I'd be like, here, here's more money. Here's more money. Here's more money. <laughs> right. So you end up with like 10 kids born to like a good family. Right. Okay. So, so I think, I think research also shows back in the days, right. I think African-American families had a pretty good incidence rate of having a, a nuclear family. Right. So what kind of caused them to just break up? all of a sudden 
Mm. So there's actually an African-American economist who has a book on this. Oh, really? By Thomas Sowell. He's an African-American economist. He's really cool. Um, the book is it's called um, something like, I actually forgot, like Black Rednecks and White something. It's a weird title. And what he his hypothesis is that it was the great society of LBJ that sort of caused this to happen. So LBJ was the prime minister after JFK. Okay. And he had these dreams of this massive welfare state that would fix everything. He called it the great society. Mm-hmm. And so he's aggressively, and he, he, in his eyes, he felt like um, African-Americans could be a really, really good source of um, political support, even though he was a racist. He was a racist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what he did was he just implemented all these all these welfare um, uh, programs into the African-American community. And what that did was actually incentivize single motherhood. Why is that? Well, because you had the situation in where um, there was no financial need for uh, single uh, for, for, for mothers and fathers to stay together. A single mother could do her own thing and be financially right. supported and everything would be okay, right? Um, in some cases, yeah. And so slowly, slowly you had an increasing culture, an increasing hookup culture, mm-hmm. decreasing marriage rate. Yeah. Um, and that started this whole a, a chain process where you have fatherlessness in one generation and so the next generation is likely to be even more fatherless. Okay. It, there, there, there is a chain reaction that happens because, the, you know, the ones that are fatherless get a little bit messed up and they're likely to produce more fatherless children, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It's, it's actually really interesting how the more developed you are in terms of like socioeconomic status, right? The less you, you breed offspring as well. And so, mm. so there's this asymmetry right so when you fall i suppose down you know the social ladder you know you lose i suppose like you know your parental figure you know you're a bit messed up um you have some bad influences right you have a high propensity to to breed like more offspring which you know increases the amount of you know possibilities for that to reinforce um you know that particular sort of behavior to the next generation and, and it kind of like cascades like that now in the olden times right like when natural selection was still a thing for the human race well those people have died because natural selection um because they wouldn't have enough to the whole premise of the human race surviving right is because of our unity our tribalism and so you know those that split off just kind of like how these nuclear family split off well those wouldn't have survived in like five thousand years ago Mm. that's actually a really interesting point you make there um what you're talking about is a strong dysgenic effect that we have got going on Mm. dysgenic being the opposite of eugenic so you have a situation because of contraceptives and whatnot where more intelligent people are more in control of the kids that they have whereas less intelligent people 
it's much easier for them to just get knocked up. Yeah. The other concern is a cultural one, which you also alluded to where people that are lower on the socioeconomic ladder have more kids. People higher on the socioeconomic ladder tend to choose to have less kids. Yeah. Maybe because of Kareem, maybe because of whatever, whatever. Um, so you're right. That's uh, th- that means that over the generations, you have a dysgenic effect where you're producing more intelligent, more impulsive people. And so the, 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 the issue, Jack, is that in order to fix that, it's not easy. No, it's not because it's with, with how exponential growth occurs. No, exactly. And you, you, you need to close the tap, the government tap, right? And that's going to cause so many problems, so many problems, so much riot, so much social unrest. I mean, they're, they're pissed off now. Can you imagine how pissed off they'd be? Yeah, if you I mean, were like, "Hey, we're going, we're going to take <laughs> actions in order to make sure that you guys, you know, um, have more functional families, <laughs> and we're going to punish people who don't have functional families by taking money, like not giving them money." Like, like the the problem with the problem with current like political landscapes, right? Is is everything is kind of like a greedy algorithm almost. It's, it's very short-sighted decisions at every single step of the way that doesn't feed into a long-term vision, like a long-term optimal play. Mm. And, and it doesn't help that presidencies kind of rotate so quickly and I, I suppose mm-hmm. abolish policies that mm. the other side made, mm. right? Like, so, so you never get this long-term solution to things like this. That's right. And that's a big problem with the democratic system, democratic process. Because when you think with a problem like this, the reality of the situation is you need the iron hand of the state. Yeah, you need the iron hand of the state to, like, to enforce certain things, right? You need the state to be like, all right, this is how we're going to turn the social welfare of these people around, right? We're going to make sure that everyone starts from this, this set minimum bar where they have all the basic needs like you know, education, food, water, shelter, right? And then it's fair game, right? That's what we need to get to. And you got to sometimes be cruel to be kind. Sometimes yeah. you have to disincentivize bad behavior that's not technically criminal in order to produce good outcomes, right? Mm. Like what, what, what's going on in the African-American community with the fatherlessness and whatnot? It's not technically criminal. It's not criminal to knock up your girlfriend and then leave her and dump her, right? It's not criminal, but it's one of the reasons why the African-American community is getting so screwed, right? And so you need the government to be cool, to be kind, right? To, to take some actions that are going to be harmful or negative in the short term, but positive in the long term. And the issue, as you say, or you allude to, is that you know democratic processes disincentivize that kind of uh policy making yeah because you make a good policy you know the next government in line will just be like yeah no like exactly exactly like so, it, it's so absurd that you know they can't even get a like the americans can't even get a basic um healthcare system functioning it's 350 million people dude like they can't it's too hard it's like they should just that should be like the responsibility of the states, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. It also doesn't help when every single state acts independently as well. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to go one way or the other. 
Yeah. What I mean, what I mean, what I mean is this: if you're gonna if you're gonna have the states be autonomous, then let them be autonomous, mm-hmm. right? But you can't be in the situation where yeah, yeah, they're autonomous, they're autonomous, and then <laughs> they're not. <laughs> yeah. As in, you still have this massively powerful federal government. Mm-hmm. Like I get it. I, I get the advantage of, of federalism, um, where you have the states basically doing their own thing with some minor guidance from the federal government. I think that would work. Um, I'm not sure just like one mega state would work because 350 million people, I don't think you can govern 350 million. No, you can't. There's just too many people. But you can't be in this like dumb compromise, which Mm. is I think what we have now where it's like, yeah, yeah, the the, the states get to do whatever they want, but it's like, no, they don't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And it's completely like, I don't know. It's just, it's a messed up system. Yeah. Nothing's going to change. Everything's going to suck forever. <laughs> like, I don't even think, like, like honestly, a lot of the problems is just so systemic. It's a, it's, it's a shame. And as you say, like, because there's no incentive to fix them, they're never going to get fixed. They're never going to get fixed. In 20 years' time, we're going to be talking about the African-American community and systemic racism and all that. We're going to be talking about that in 20 years. Yes. Oh, I mean, okay. That being said, I, I do think, you know, it's going to be, it might get slightly better. Like there is some optimism given that we, we see now that at least in popular culture, right? There are slowly, like, like we're slowly seeing the rise of African-American um, powerful celebrities, right? Whether it be sports figures or like people in the hip hop industry, or people in movies, right? I do think that is going to spur the community to be in a better position um, because of the outreach and the positive influence that those figures have. Like more than ever, they do have a, I suppose, a role model to look towards now, right? There is hope. So I do think that is a positive. Um, But what needs to happen is there needs to be further incentives for successful businessmen in these communities to reinvest and, and kind of teach the robes to their tribe, the next people, the community, right? So that they too can do the same thing and it becomes this recurring cycle, right? I, I, think, I think the guidance through innovation and, and making them empowered to do, do, like, to do business or do entertainment or do sports, will ultimately put them in a better position. Exactly. Entre- entrepreneurship needs to be supported in these communities. Yeah, absolutely. You know what shouldn't be supported? What? Useless college degrees. Oh, my oh gosh. I agree. <laughs> just, just ban liberal studies. <laughs> or be like, hey, yeah, you can do it, but but we're going to like put like a 20% luxury tax. <laughs> 20% dumb degree tax. You, you know, the funny thing is, you know, like degrees kind of like used to be something where, you know, people who, who wanted to be, you know, philosophers or thought leaders kind of just did it for fun, like the intellectual challenge. Mm. And now it's just this, this, this garbage mess where it's like, okay, I agree. Some are useful. They teach you valuable skills. It's like apprenticeship almost. It's like a trade. But the other half is like, it's not even philosophical. Like it's so biased. Like how can you call that a philosophy? 
Yeah, yeah. You, you, what you're saying is right. Universities were never designed to teach technical skills. I understand that they do it now to some degree, but they're not super successful at it. No. They were designed basically to get a bunch of, you know, rich, smart people in one place and just be like, "Hey, guys, do stuff." <laughs> yeah, it's probably yeah. like just for familial connections, if anything. It's like, it's- hey, hey, meet this other powerful family, have fun. Uh, yeah, but it was also about like it was about like it was about discovering new knowledge for sure. But yeah. it was sort of like, hey, hey, let, let, let's let's figure out how to make people how to you know get people to dis- discover new knowledge or create new knowledge. Mm. Put a bunch of smart people together, like put a bunch of rich smart people together, and then you know, um, and that's sort of what it was. Um, just a bunch of smart people researching and figuring stuff out and tinkering around with ideas. Um, that's not a great, and it's and it's still got that basic structure, I think. But I, I think that's just not appropriate for the modern economy. Um, most people don't need to research. No, most people need a, a trade skill or a apprenticeship, right? Like 100%. University should honestly just be learning how to do something and, uh, and learn by doing. And they need to link it to a like internship or apprenticeship where they can actually apply the knowledge. So I do really love what Waterloo is doing. Their degree is very flexible. So even if you do say a mathematics degree, right? You do learn say computer science, you do learn you know, physics with it. It's, it's very custom tailored to whatever you need want to do. And mm. on top of that, you have six internships, which is incredibly wow. great. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's the way. So, so you see these mathematicians, right? They they get this very well-rounded education, and before they've graduated, they've kind of tried out a career in tech, a career in, in banking, a career in in finance, a, a career in like I don't know, like any other thing, right? And 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 that makes them capable of having more informed uh, decisions with their lives. Otherwise, you land any internship that you can muster. Um, and it's already very hard to do so, it, right? Which is a bit dumb um, because I think, you know, there needs to be a lot more internships. So people can actually taste the degree that they want to, or like the path they want to take. And also, I think there should be the incentive where for graduates, we should be able to um, jump around and, and try different fields. Right, like I think, I think the way society is optimized towards right now is, you pick something, right? I don't care if you like it or not. Just choose, you know, the highest paying job, suffer in it, do it for like until you're thirty, and then be like, oh, okay, I don't want to do this. I actually hate my life. And then, and then you go on like a rabbit hole trying to rediscover what you enjoy, and it's it's really hard because you're already pigeonholed into something you don't like. Society punishes you punishes you for changing. And switching out the switching cost is too high you have added burden financial burdens from raising a family and you know you just live your life miserable that's right that's right university should be should be serving the interests of the student um in exactly the way that you're talking about giving them a taste giving them experience um they should be required to do these things yeah it's absurd that they aren't um it needs to evolve. I mean, this institution started in what the 1100s. You know, it's old. It needs to change. Yeah.
It's mm. also absurd how, okay, what, what I do like about the online education movement like Coursera and, and edX and, and all that is it's really adding competition to these universities, right? Like the, the benefits of a university is, is ever diminishing, right? It's, it's now only serving as honestly a socializing hub first and foremost. And uh, secondly, you, you get this audit that you are a good, capable, functioning worker, um, but it doesn't really give you the skills per se because mm, you can learn mm. yourself. Mm. Um, and so, like, I, I think these adaptations is gonna evolve, especially you know, with you know the higher um, price tags that a lot of these degrees warrant, and those are increasing year by year, which is insane. Completely agree. Completely like, do agree. you see Elon Musk going like, oh, hey, I need to learn how to build a rocket. Let me take a PhD in rocketry at a university. No. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It's, he taught himself. Got a couple of textbooks, taught himself. Um, yeah, I think definitely it's got, I think things are definitely going to change in the future. They should change, but they will change as well because what the way things are going right now is super inefficient and the only people benefiting are university admins. Yeah. Um, and that can't go on forever and it's not going to um even with all that prestige and whatever prestige is a big thing i agree um, the piece of paper is a big thing but it's not going to be a big thing forever eventually the market will realize <laughs> this is kind of crap <laughs> it's all right and if you get good enough at engineering just work for spacex or tesla exactly so i think things will definitely change um which is necessary to feed you know this this new kind of economy where you know doing a degree where you learn next to nothing is going to met is going to screw you over you know okay okay i've only recently realized why degrees are kind of worthless okay and it's, it's not so much about you know you don't learn anything like you do learn a lot if you think about it the reason why it's worthless is because you don't know how to apply it right? Like you consume far more than you create, which is a problem. Like I'd say society right now is tilted to 99% consuming and 1% creativity. 1% is, is honestly a, um, an overstatement, I'd say, for most people. I, I actually agree with that. Yeah, it's not, it's like we need to be, um, we need to be encouraging innovation. And I don't think whatever systems we have in place is doing that at the moment. Dude, we just need to create more. Like, like honestly, it's, it's, it's shocking how, you know, people, as they progress through adulthood or like teenager years, the amount of creativity they have just keeps on dropping. Like, have, have you heard of the study, the research? About, yes. Yeah, so pretty much um, this, this guy designed this test for NASA, right? And that's how NASA, you know, picks um, innovative, talented engineers to, um, to work for them, right? And he applied the same test to, you know, different age buckets, right? And what he found was the five-year-old group, right? 98% of them had a genius creativity score. But then when you come to adulthood, right? Guess what that percentage is? What? 2%. <laughs> Inverse. 
right? It's the complete inverse. And so, and part of the reason for that is because the schooling system has just taught us how to regurgitate information, consume information, but never replicate, create information, right? Philosophers back in the days did it for the arts, right? They, they are constantly curious. They are discovering things, right? You know, they, they think of a problem, right? And, and that becomes their, their purpose in life to try and uncover, you know, how to solve it, right? They experiment, they play around with it. That's, that's the essence of mathematics, right? But what is mathematics now? It's just the, the husk, the shell of like the past. You just get a bunch of formulas. You don't know where they come from. Um, you don't know how to use it. Um, you don't know, I, I suppose, what problems people were trying to solve in order to come up with it, right? People can't even create their own questions, right? Their ex own exploratory questions. Mm. Back in the days, you got Aristotle going like, oh yeah, I wonder how I can measure the area of a triangle and, and thought about it, right? Probably like, I don't know, saw some constellation of stars or something and be like, all right, I just want to measure it uh, just for fun, right? And, and then, I don't know, saw like some snails or something and started trying to measure the area of like some curvatures or whatever. These days, you just learn it and you're like, all right, cool. So what? Mm -hmm. I, I agree. Something needs to change in, uh, in the way that we teach students so that they um, learn things properly, rigorously, but also so that they um, are actually excited about what they learn. Mm. Um, and I think a good way to do that is to disincentivize non-excitement. <laughs> I think the way to do that is basically, you know, just to, um, I don't know, there's no easy way to do that. I think the best way to do that is, you know, give them legitimate tests that test understanding. Yeah. I and think then, there needs to be more capstone projects. Yes, that too. And you just and you, and you just fail people who don't make the cut. Yeah, dude. And in order to make the cut, well, they need to be way more interested in the subject matter. Yeah. Like, it's kind of absurd that in other fields, like, say, music or um, arts, there's this whole iterative process where you're creating your... You're building things, right? You're experimenting. You're you're curious, right? There's yeah, sure. There's like some guidelines. There's some principles, right? But within those boundaries, you're you're kind of like free forming it. Whereas you know, for for the harder sciences, you, you kind of lost that sort of flair in a modern age. Mm, mm. Um. Yeah, we need to figure out how to get that back. Mm. Anyway, I think um I need to wrap up here. Actually, yeah, let's wrap up. Um, you should check the betting markets, bro. Things are happening. Yeah, dude, I, I saw this map and oh, it's 85 to 55 Biden's way currently. Um, Did you check the betting markets? No, what, what has happened? What's the odds? The odds of Trump winning have increased by a lot. Oh, yeah, I see that. Um, interesting. Yeah, my position just tanked a bit. <laughs> Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, like the what's my quotes? The AED USD um dropped by fifty bips. Um That's interesting. My hopes are well, it's getting my hopes up. Wow. Yeah. Even though he still had 
Okay, so so why do you think the is it because of Florida right now? I don't know. I haven't seen the map. Because because Florida is ahead by three points. But for, for Trump? Yeah, for Trump. Yeah, I think I think it's because of Florida. Florida um, is tight in battle for two seventy. For Penn, it's it's Biden leading by sixty three points. Tune in next Tuesday for our next podcast. Also, please leave a review on your podcast provider. Thank you.